Amen. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you guys for praying. If you uh, have been here a while or you're just visiting or, or a couple times sometimes, it's helpful for us to remember why we are doing this at all. Um, and I was thinking about it as we were sitting there and then we prayed together. You know, why does common ground exist? There's a lot of churches and, and all over there's churches. Why do we exist? Common ground is here. Very simply, I'm going to very simply, why are we here? We're here because the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Most people are headed toward destruction in life through sin and hell. Most people are, and they, they don't even know it. It says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. But Jesus said that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life here and life eternal. And so our heart, our passion is that we grow in Jesus. We get to know Jesus and then that goes out. Um, our mission here is to expand the kingdom of God in our lives and the world around us. And if you've been involved in churches at all very long, there's a tendency, and every church has it. There's, there's really three areas where we need to be walking with the Lord. One is an up relationship with Jesus, with God. We need a daily time pursuing God uh, all the time. We need to be pursuing God this way. But then we also need a relationship with one another. As you've heard it said, uh, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Oddly enough, even for us introverts, we were created to be in relationship with one another. Very important. So there's two. And then the one, and every church is going to be good at one, maybe two, but most will lack in one. And it's normally this last one, a relationship with the world. How do we as Christians up and a community in, then go out to the world. And as Paul said, we actually exist for those not quite here. And that sounds bad, but the church exists for the world, not just for itself. And so we need all three relationships, up with the Lord, in with one another, and out with the world, up, in, and out. Uh, we exist, we like to talk about this often, we exist to know God. I hope you know that. You were made to know God. That's why you were made, to know him and to love him, and you're going to do that forever. That's your purpose. If you've ever gone, you know, what's God's will for my life? It's to know him and love him. Boom, pursue him. But your mission is different than your purpose. Your mission, while still on this earth, is to help other people know him. So why do we get together on a Sunday? Up, in, and out, and it's written on the wall over there. This is primarily up. Because we're going to worship together. We were saved by Jesus because he died on the cross and rose again. And this is where we get to worship together. The Bible says, don't forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. But keep getting together. And so we get together to worship. That's why we ask the Spirit to join us. That's why we sing. And part of that up worship is here opening the Bible. We believe here that the Bible is God's word. If there's any truth, it's here. My opinion means nothing unless it's this. And so we teach the Bible. So that's what we're doing on Sunday. We're trying to hear from God. It's, it's weird how when you get together as a community, expecting to hear from God, he speaks through his word. That's why we always open this every Sunday and we teach exegetically. That means right through this. Whatever the main point of this passage is, that's what we will teach. I don't come up with a good idea and go, I need to find some verses to support what I want to say. We teach right from the Bible. But the problem about Sunday is we don't, we don't really connect in all that well. We can, I mean, afterward we hang out and we have coffee and, and so there's some of that, but also we don't really go out here, although sometimes we do. Sometimes we'll meet together, pray, and then go do something. Um, and so we have outpost groups. So how do we do it here? We come together to go up. We get in outpost groups to go in. 
to meet together. And then through those outpost groups, our goal is to go out and keep going out. And so coming up, we have this Dream Christmas. This is an outreach to those in our community that are in need. And at Christmas, there's going to be a dinner provided um, and a bunch of stuff going on. And so this is why we want to go. Our church has agreed. We've already given them 4,400 bucks to help with this. Just so you know, we're, we're really all in on this mission. Um, and so we're going to go and we're going to help. I signed up our family. Brendan, you don't know this yet. You're going to be an elf. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, our family is going to be like Santa and elves and helpers and, and do that. So that's going to be fun. But there's lots of needs. So sign up to that. Um, so we can go together in that. Right before that, for the three weeks before that dream Christmas, we're going to have a class here. We're calling it a class, but it's going to be interactive. It's going to be fun. We're going to have food. And it's for those of you not in a group, this is a great time to, to get some of that connection. Those of you in a group, we're taking the next seven weeks off. So you have to come too. Have to. Do you hear that? Have to. No, you don't have to come. But it's going to be a fun time because one of the issues that we bump up against is we don't want to be a program driven church. We don't want to give you a lot to do because we want you in relationship with one another and going out. But that means we're limited to how much we get to cover biblically. And so, you know, we'll teach each week on a passage, but there's some things we're missing. And so what we're doing here is it's three weeks of Bible basics, basic things we need to know. Who is God? Who are you as a Christian? And then what do we do with this whole faith and works thing? So three weeks, uh, basic but deep, actually. And it'll be fun, culminating in Dream Christmas. Um, so there you go. That's us in a nutshell. And you caught us at the beginning of a new series in John. The reason we're going through John is because we get to know Jesus. And the life of a Jesus follower is very simply believing in Jesus, following Jesus, and letting Jesus live through us. For us to do that, we need to get to know Jesus. So we are going to be in John chapter 7. Let me pray one more time. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's not a secret why we're here. It's not a secret why you made us. You made us to know you and to love you forever. And we're going to have eternity with you, so our hope is secure. Thank you. But yet our mission is sometimes very difficult to bring your truth to others. And I pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to carry out the mission, but you would let us be content in obedience, that we would, we would not take too much control of the results and try and uh, persuade people in, in the wrong way to follow you or, or base our self-worth on how we get people to follow you, but let us just simply trust you, follow you, and love others the way you do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Brendan was in preschool, and he's 17 now, Callie was helping out in preschool, and there was a day when they said, okay, whoever, maybe it was an ongoing thing, if you ever want to sing a song, you can sing a song in front of the class. And so Brendan wanted to sing a song, and he got up, and the teacher stopped him from singing his song, because he was singing Jesus Loves Me. This was California. So um, he was singing Jesus Loves Me, and the teacher said, no, you can't sing that song because it's about Jesus. And I remember Callie coming home and us, what do we do? And, and I think somehow he was finally able to sing the song because we weren't going to let it go. Whoa. Um, <laughs> the kids are over there and they're having a good time. Um, but there's, there's, we encounter that in our schools. You can't talk about Jesus. Uh, we encounter that all over. There was a, I did a little searching online and there was an article in the Huffington Post entitled, uh, 
Christian pros, proselytizing, proselytizing, that's the word, Christian proselytizing a form of oppression. And the article was talking about Christians sharing their faith on campuses and, and how that's actually a form of oppression. We shouldn't be allowed to do that. This was in, a, in the Huffington Post. Um, the ACLJ, if you're familiar with the ACLJ, they have several cases going right now. They, uh, they band together and they try and help their lawyers, attorneys, they try and help Christians being oppressed. And they have some cases of students who have been not allowed entry into certain aspects of college or they've been failed in classes because of their faith. And I mean, just blatant out there, because of their faith, they're denied entry. There was one that the student was filling out an application for a portion of the school and he was denied. And the professor pulled him aside. He said, hey, next time you fill those out, don't put anything about your faith on there. You'll always get rejected. And this is surprising to us, right? So all of you right now, your shackles are going up a little bit. Like, that's not fair. That's not the way it should be. But today we're going to look at that is the way it's going to be. That's actually the way it was when Jesus walked the earth. And that's the way it is going to be now. And it's probably going to get worse and that's the way it's always going to be. So rather than getting upset about it and fighting it, what do we do about it? How do we live this way? And so we're going to look at Jesus and see how he handled it. Because again, our life right now, how do we live as Christians? It's Jesus living his life, the life he lived then, now through you and I. This last year, I was talking to a, a Christian leader and he was telling me about his job. And I'm not going to tell you where he works, but uh, he works government. And he was telling me, and I was asking about, you know, how's his faith going at work? How's he able to share that? And he said, well, because I work government, you're not allowed to share your faith. And so really, sometimes we think another person might be a believer. And so what we do, it's kind of like back in the Roman times where you draw half the fish in the dirt and the other person draws the other half of the fish. And then you both know you're Christians and you wink and go on your way. And honestly, I was dumbfounded. I was blown away because that's not what God calls us to do. That's not at all. Now, I get it. I get it, especially government jobs, teachers, things. You have to be careful. I get that. You're not going to get up and, in biology, teach a lesson on creation. And, and I mean, you can't exactly do that. I get that. But do we need to keep it such a secret because we're scared of what's going to happen? We're going to get fired. We're going to lose our job. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus did. And so here's our big idea today as we look at Jesus. Understand the nature of of how it's going to be, the nature of opposition to Jesus, and what we do about it. We've entitled this three-week series, Moth or Cockroach. I know that sounds, no, no laughs. Um, moth or cockroach, the, or cockroach or moth. The reason is, next week, we're going to look at Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And we're going to focus next week mostly on just that claim, I am the light of the world. And what do you do when you flip on a light? A moth is drawn to the light. A cockroach runs and hides. They want nothing to do with the light. And there's something about humanity where people are either moths or cockroaches, really. And what are you? When, when Jesus shines his light, are you drawn to him or do you want to run and hide? You want to get under a rock? And we're going to look at why that's the case and what we do about it. So look at John, please. We're going to cover a whole chapter today, chapter seven. And we're going to skip some verses. We're not going to look at every single verse, but we're going to get the thrust of it as we look at it. So look at John chapter seven. It's page 989 in the Bible under you. I encourage you, look it up, especially covering as many verses as we are today. Look it up so you can follow along. But John chapter 7. Now, we've already seen before this Jesus claiming to be God. 
The Gospel of John begins with basically laying out who Jesus is as the eternal word. So Jesus is equal with God. He's already claimed it. They knew he was claiming it, so they were going to kill him. He backs it up by saying, oh, by the way, I, you know, am equal with God. But even that, I wasn't created. I've always existed. I've always been. And so this opposition is increasing to Jesus. And we see that opposition in these next three chapters. Last week, actually it was two weeks ago, in uh, chapter six, we saw Jesus saying that he is the bread of life. He said, I'm the bread of life. So the way that you find real life is to feed on him, to abide in him. Now some time went by, and here he is in Galilee. After this, John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now we're going to see he does actually end up going up to the feast. But here, the beginning, this kind of sets the stage. You see several things that we need to know in this passage. Uh, it's the Feast of Booths. That's where they're going, and that's where Jesus is going to teach over the next couple chapters is at this Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was held in the fall around the harvest time, and it was a big party in Jerusalem. And so people, this was the one feast where people, a lot of people would travel to Jerusalem and they would set up tabernacles. It's also called, called the Feast of Tabernacles or booze. They would set up tents, lean-tos all around the city. And if you lived in the city, you set one up on your porch and you slept outside for a week. And they were remembering the journey from Egypt to the promised land. Remember when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They're remembering that time. And a lot of what they're remembering is God's provision for them. And there's several rituals, ceremonies that happen throughout this week. It's a seven or eight day festival. And there's water rituals. Each day they would bring water from the pool of Siloam and they would bring it and they would pour it out before the Lord in the temple, remembering God's provision of water. There would be a torch lighting ceremony. We're going to talk about that next week where they would light these basic stadium torches that would light up the whole city. And so Jesus is going to walk into this feast and he's going to start referring to those things that they were doing throughout the week saying, that points to me, that points to me, the water ritual, the light ritual. And so that's, that's kind of the scene, but it shows us before this, he's not in Judea and he says, I'm not going up because they want to kill me and it's not time for me to die yet. That's what it means when he says, it's not yet my time. It's going to be his time when he goes to Jerusalem and when he's crucified and he gives his life, but it's not his time yet. And you see his brothers here. These are the sons of Mary and Joseph. So they're his half-brothers. And they kind of get on his case a little bit. They say, you know, people like you, they want to be known. And so you should go and do this in front of everybody so they can see. They're kind of ridiculing him. Because it says here in these verses that they don't yet believe in him. We know that at least two of these brothers will someday believe. They'll follow. In fact, James is one of these brothers, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he writes the book of James. So these are his brothers. They don't yet believe. And he says what the issue is in verse seven. 
In verse 7, this is kind of a, this is one of those big verses. If you're one that underlines, underline verse 7. It says this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The reason that people hate Jesus is because he shines a light on their sin. Do you get that? The reason why some people are cockroaches and they hide from the light is because Jesus shines a light on their sin. And he still does that today, by the way. The Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, who is equal with Jesus, equal with the Father, that's the Trinity, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. That's one of the things he does right now. And when people are convicted of sin, they either go, oh no, I need to do something about this. Their, their sin is revealed. They see that they're apart from God and either they're then drawn to Jesus who has already dealt with it on the cross or they want to live their way and they hide. And so that's what most people do. That's what he's talking about with the world in verse seven. The world doesn't hate you because you're just like it, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Have you ever attempted to help somebody by showing them their sin? I hear some laughs. How'd it go? <laughs> if you're ever going to do that, it, it must be done in the context of a close relationship. But even in that situation, it's hard. It's hard. Have you ever had your sin revealed to you by somebody else? That's hard. It takes a lot of humility to hear it and go, you're right, I need to change. Or even just think about it. Are you right? I need to change. But that's what Jesus does. He reveals people's sin. That's why people hate him. That's why people hate him. Now, look on. We're going to see more of this as he goes. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So here's, here's the situation. There's the scene. Jesus had been doing miracles, and he did them on the Sabbath. How dare he? So that was why they wanted to kill him. He did it on the Sabbath, and then he defended that he could do it because he's equal with God. They want to kill him. But some are seeing his miracles going, eh, a sinner wouldn't do this. We're going to see that conversation in two weeks. Sinners can't do what he's doing. He must be from God. And so this is the debate that's going on. The leaders want to kill him. Others maybe want to follow him. They're saying he's a good man, but nobody is speaking openly. And this is key to the next three chapters because they were scared of the Jews. Verse 13, it says, for fear of the Jews, because they had decided that if anybody confesses Jesus as the Messiah, he, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Now, this is Jerusalem. This is the time of the Jews, they all were, I mean, it was a theocracy to a certain extent. They were under Roman rule, but they all were followers of Yahweh. And so life was bent up in the synagogue. So if you were kicked out of the synagogue, if you were excommunicated, that meant you would lose your friends, your family, maybe your job, your income, your life would change. You would lose everything if you confessed Jesus. And so for fear of what they would lose, everybody was staying silent. Many are unwilling to confess Jesus because of what it will cost them. Because of what it will cost them. So you see this. There's kind of two. There's the cockroach that hides, that hates Jesus because he reveals their sin. Or there's those that might be drawn in, but they go, it'll cost me too much. I'm going to remain silent. 
And this reminds me of the friend that I had who is unwilling to speak out and just do the little fish in the sand because of what it'll cost him. Two things. There's, there's two things. For one, it says Jesus isn't worth it for me to step out. Jesus isn't worth it. I'm going to stay silent because I like my stuff. Or the second thing, a lack of faith that, that God won't provide for me. If I get fired from my job because of stepping out in faith or whatever it is, if I lose these friendships because of being bold, I'll lose things. And I don't trust that God can provide that. It's a lack of faith, isn't it? Think about it. Think about it yourself. When, why have you sometimes remained silent? It was probably selfish. It probably was selfish. Because we, rather than caring about the soul and the eternal soul of the other person, we care about what we will lose. Now, I'm speaking to myself here. <laughs> I'm as guilty as anybody. But that's these people. They're scared that if they speak up, they'll lose everything. Now, in the middle of the feast, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. It's a seven or eight day feast, so this is day three-ish, three or four, he, he goes up. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man learned when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So he steps up and he starts teaching. So in that day and age, if you were going to be teaching, rabbi, teacher, Jewish teacher, you had been trained under other rabbis. Basically, you had gone to seminary. And their issue with him is, this guy's never gone to seminary. This guy's never been trained. And the way the Jews would do it is they would teach, but basically what they did would just quote the rabbis who came before. That was the way they would teach. Here's the scripture or whatever it is, the Old Testament scripture, and here's what Rabbi so-and-so says and Rabbi so-and-so. And it would go back hundreds and they would quote all these rabbis. But Jesus didn't teach that way. Jesus got up and said, I say this. And so it was different. They're saying, this guy teaches with authority. All these other rabbis, they lean on other people's authority, but he comes as if he has the authority and he does because we know he was God in flesh. And so there's, where did he get this learning? And he says, it's from the Father. He has the authority and he's speaking directly from God to people. And here's what he says in verse 17. So if you're a note taker, verse seven was key. Circle that. Verse 17 is key. Let me read it again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. All who truly want God will find him. All those who would be drawn to God and the truth will get it. They will believe it. They won't run and hide. They'll be drawn to him. Those who are morally willing to follow Jesus will be intellectually convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me say that again. Those who are morally willing to follow Jesus will be intellectually convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Think about this now. Okay, this is Jews then in their basic theocracy. Religion was all of life. But look at our world now. How do we live in Carson City right now? What is the dominant worldview of the people around you? The dominant worldview is you are God. You get to decide what's best for you. You get to decide morality, relativism. 
I was at, at uh, Starbucks some months ago talking to a guy who was espousing relativism. Oh, everything's relative. I, really? I said, well, the shirt that I'm wearing, I was wearing a red shirt, is red, right? He's like, well, that's your opinion of it. <laughs> really? <laughs> so you, you can't admit that my shirt is red? Well, maybe somebody might see it different. Okay. If your best friend went up on a cliff and said, I can fly and was going to jump off, would you stop him? Well, if he believes he can fly, but he can't. Well, but who am I to tell him what to, so you would let your friend jump to his death. But, but this is our worldview. You know, as I was studying this week, the interpretation has been given to the reader. So somebody writes a book, a story, whatever it is, you, and maybe you know this if you've taken classes, what do you think this means? And you get to read, you know, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, whatever, and you get to decide what you think it means. No, <laughs> it means whatever they intended it to mean when they wrote it. So this is our worldview currently. Our worldview puts you in control, and it's a great place to be, isn't it? If evolution is true, then the strong survive so I can force my way. Hedonism can take over. Well, I just want to be happy. How often have you heard that? I just want to be happy. I can't believe that God would have anything other than just to make me happy. That's, that's not the truth. And so we pursue happiness, hedonism, with, with whether it's sex or drugs or alcohol, whatever it is, we pursue these things. But God says, no, it's, it's my way. And so you see this. The problem is that if anybody would be drawn to God, if they're willing to, to let go of control, they will be convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, because he is. But the person who wants to stay in control will find any reason not to believe. This is key to what we're looking at in these next few chapters. The person who wants to go their own way will not believe. There has to be a point where they break down, where they, where they go, okay, I'm willing to believe something else. I'm willing to give up control, because that's what Jesus wants. What's Romans 10, 9 say? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, meaning the one in control, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But most people want to maintain control. And so when Jesus exposes their sin, he shines a light on their sin, they go, uh-uh, I get to control what sin is. That's not sin. I like it too much. And so here you see this. Verse 17, again, it's key. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Many in this first century, many around this time, were drawn to Jesus. And after Jesus died and rose again, many Jewish leaders, Pharisees, actually turned to follow him because they did want God's will. They did want God's will, and they were convinced, and they went his way. Those who are morally willing to follow Jesus will be intellectually convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is significant to you and me as we live for the world out there. This is significant. There's a philosopher at New York University, Thomas Nagel, and he wrote this. He's a, he's a philosopher, but he's, he's an evolutionist. He says, I speak from experience. Being strongly subject to this fear myself, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. This is a professor of philosophy at New York University. And he's made uneasy by the intelligent people he knows that are believers. 
And he admits it. This is, I mean, I, I would say, good job being bold and admitting it. I don't want the world to be like that. Because if the world is like that, I'm not in control. But the truth, the truth is there is a God. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. The truth is we are all separated from God by our sin and there's nothing we can do about it. That's the truth. Sin is real. We've all offended God eternally, but Jesus paid it. And the truth is there's nothing we can do to earn the salvation. All we do is simply believe. That's what this book is about. That's what the book of John is about. We see later, John says why he wrote. He says, I wrote all these things so that you would believe and have life. It's that easy. It's that easy. And if you're a moth, you'll be drawn to the light and you'll realize, believe and have life. All we have to do is believe. What's the work of God? We saw this last or two weeks ago. They said, what's the work of God that we should do? He said, your work is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's our work, to believe in Jesus. So many who we want to be converted because we don't live just for ourselves. We live to expand the kingdom. When we go and share it, guess what? Many are not going to want to hear it. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we want to sing, Jesus loves me, and they say, stop. They don't want to hear it. When you say, Merry Christmas, and they say, oh, no, no, happy holidays. They don't want there to be a Christ. They want to go their way. Understand that this is the way it's going to be. And how do we respond? Because we can respond by just being silent, or we can respond by being belligerent, and that doesn't get you anywhere. You, you can be one of those jerk Christians who try and proves that, that everybody else is wrong and you're right, and that's no fun. So how do we respond? Look at verse 18. 18, he starts speaking to them. The one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. He's speaking about himself. And in him there is no falsehood. Now he starts talking about their religion. Has not Moses given you the law? This is what they wrap their lives around. They wrap their lives around the law. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They wanted to kill him because they said he was breaking the Sabbath. He was breaking the law. He said, but you are all breaking the law all the time. So why are you killing me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. So here Jesus is now poking holes in their man-made religion. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, which is work. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man, um, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. He pokes a hole. He reveals their, their wrong thinking. But do you see that he doesn't try and convince them? He just kind of states it. He states it. Here's, here's what you're doing. Here's where you have it wrong. And he just plainly says, here it is. But they refuse to see it. Because they don't want that to be true. They want to go their own way. He says, don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Again, those who want or are willing to follow God will be convinced. So he doesn't get the details. He doesn't try and persuade them. We are called to persuade, but sometimes we go too far, don't we? The person that doesn't want to hear, we still try and push it on them. When I graduated college... Um, the first year after college, I read like 50 books because I realized there was so little I knew. And most of the books that I read or one of my favorite topics was apologetics because my goal was to learn everything there is to know 
so that I could have any conversation with anybody and convince them Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I had a conversation with a woman who was relativistic and, and Eastern thinking and great conversation. I thought, you know, she's nodding the whole time, big smiling at the end. You know, basically it's like, all right, what do you want to do about it? And she said, that's great for you. You found your way. I said, didn't you just, I said, it's the only way, the only way. Well, you found your way. So that's one person I had a conversation and I, I was frustrated. Another guy wanted, and this was a good friend of mine. He was an atheist, wanted to be, believe in evolution, said, we have a tailbone, which means we used to have a tail. That was his big argument. Um, and so I went and I read all these books about evolution and creation. And so I came back and, and we had a long conversation and, and I was able to poke all these holes in his belief in evolution. And in the end, and, and I did it lovingly. I mean, I didn't want to just win the argument. I loved him. I cared about him. And so I was trying to be sensitive. But in the end, he just went, oh, I just want to believe it. And he just kind of stormed out. You know, after he said, well, I want to, I said, but you see, it doesn't make sense. It takes more faith to believe what you believe than to believe what the Bible says. Well, I just want to. That's what I want to believe. And he stormed out. I went, what do I do? Not much after that, I'm at home with a Mormon friend of mine. And me and this Mormon friend, and again, a guy I really care about, a good guy, a good friend. We're sitting and we're talking and I studied Joseph Smith and that. I'm like, well, let's talk about this. And at the end he goes, well, I have a burning in my bosom. I just know it's true. I said, but I just showed you how it doesn't really make sense, but yet the Bible does. He said, no, I just, I, I just feel that it's true. And I was flabbergasted. I was frustrated because I took my mission seriously to go make disciples and I failed repeatedly. But what this shows me is it's not up to me. <laughs> it's not up to me. My job is to obey by, by sharing, by witnessing. It's my job to try and study, to try and know, try and convince, persuade lovingly, but it's not my job when they don't respond because some people have already made it up in their mind. They want to be in control. They're going to do it their way. And so this is what we need to understand. That part is not up to us. Look on. And he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit here. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a whole sermon right here. <laughs> um, but because we want to get through John in about a year, we're not able to break apart every single thing that we see. But here he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you that during this festival, they had this ceremony with water. There was a, a spring, the spring of Gihon, and it was outside the city. Well, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, had dug a tunnel hundreds of years before this, a tunnel that went from the spring into the city, which fed the pool of Siloam. We're going to see that again in, in two chapters. So it fed this pool uh, because the city was always under siege, and, and so here they have, they have water in the city tunneled in. And that water, it was a living water. It was flowing as a fresh spring water. And it would come in and it would, it would provide water. And they would use that water during the ceremony to remember in the wilderness, God provided water. If you remember, the people grumbled against Moses. They said, you brought us out of here and we're going to starve to death. And now we're really thirsty. We're going to die of thirst. And so he goes to a rock and he taps it with a stick and boom, you get a river. And they all had enough to drink. And so they're remembering God's provision. 
But in this ceremony, they're also looking forward to the future when the Messiah would come and the Spirit would be given. This was all talked about in in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so they were looking forward to the time when the Spirit would be poured out. And so that's partly what they were remembering as they did this ceremony all week. And so Jesus steps up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Just like in the wilderness, God provided the water. Now Jesus says, I'll provide the spiritual thirst, the spiritual water that you need. I am the fulfillment of what you're doing here every day. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Just so you know, every believer that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, any person, they get the Holy Spirit immediately. The Holy Spirit is given as a seal, meaning a down payment. So you have the Holy Spirit. With him come gifts. One, two, three, you know, we all have different gifts to use as witnesses, to use in the church, to use outside the church. We're given these gifts, but everybody is given the Holy Spirit. But he was given at Pentecost. You see that John puts this note in there. He says, he's talking about the Spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus died, he rose again. He walked around for a while, showed himself to many. Then he ascended. It was after that that the Holy Spirit was then poured out. Now, the Holy Spirit was active. He was doing other things, but this was the first time when believers were indwelt. And do you remember Pentecost? There's 120 in the room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and what did they do immediately? They walked outside, and they started preaching. That's that's the first thing they did. They went out as bold witnesses, and that day, thousands were converted. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, Commentators debate what has talked about this. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart. There's two two thoughts. Is it that the Holy Spirit is given to you, which means out of your heart will flow the Spirit, which will quench your desires for you. That's one. The other is out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is life to others. The Holy Spirit through you will pour out to others. And I think it's I think it's both. I think both are fine. (laughs) that the Holy Spirit in you will refresh you, will give you life, but then through you, he will empower you to be a witness to others. Those who believe in Jesus will find spiritual satisfaction and will receive the Holy Spirit who will continually quench spiritual thirst in the believer and pour out to others. And pour out to others. Verse 40, when the people heard this, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And then they go in and they have this debate about where the Christ is going to come from. But what is our application? As we look at Jesus in the midst of opposition that will eventually get him killed, what does he do? How does he handle it? He boldly moves forward. Jesus said he came to give life and to give it abundantly. And he is a bold witness. He continues moving forward regardless of their response. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 says this. So the honor is for you who believe, that's you and I, if we have by faith accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's referring to Jesus. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus will be a stumbling block to many because they don't want to hear about him. They don't want to know him. They want to live in their sin. They don't want him to expose their sin. Does that mean that we should just shut up and sit down and be tolerant? We should be tolerant. Tolerant means loving those who think differently. But it doesn't mean we remain silent and get squished. That's what our wor- the dominant worldview would tell you to shut up and sit down. <laughs> Jesus would tell you, be bold, stand up. The Holy Spirit's going to empower you and let's go. And guess what? You're going to re- be rejected for it. You're going to lose things. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, but it, Jesus is worth it. That's what we talked about the last three weeks in our Seek First series. If you missed it, get on the podcast. But Jesus is worth it. Seek him first. It will cost you, but he's worth it. But he's worth it. Our responsibility is not what people's response will be. Our responsibility is to pursue God and to be a witness. And our kids will be stopped from singing, Jesus loves me. <laughs> and we may lose our jobs. But let's be bold, wise, wise, loving, but bold. So our next step, because we exist, kind of our our theme today, really, we exist for those outside. If you got a bulletin coming in, a handout, inside there is an invite card. This week, give that card to somebody. Invite somebody to church. Now, better, better than inviting somebody to church is invite somebody over to your house. invite somebody to our three-week class. Invite somebody to your small group when they start up again. But get it in your mind. We live for them. Their response isn't our responsibility. But our responsibility is to be a bold witness. So take that card, use it, invite somebody to church this next week. Or let that be, uh, put it up on your, your refrigerator. Write a name on it, whatever it is. And use that as a reminder that we're going to be bold and let the Holy Spirit work. And guess what? When we do, here's what excites me about what's going to happen. Because the Holy Spirit's moving in Carson City. We can't see it. But I'm meeting with some of the other pastors and I'm talking, and, and the Holy Spirit's doing something. And we want to figure out what that is and go that way. Whatever that is. But it's going to be awesome. We're going to see lives change. We're seeing lives change. But we're going to see more lives changed. But as long as we sit in our holy huddle... <laughs> up and in, and we don't go out, we're not going to see that happen. But it takes the the Holy Spirit's strength and our bold obedience. Let me pray, and we're going to worship some more. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us life. Thank you that we can have the peace, we can have the security And the hope for eternity, that we will be with you forever. And it's not based on what we do. And I also thank you that for some reason that I don't understand, you have decided to partner with us in ministry. You've decided to use us to work through us. When people feel the hand of God, most of the time it's going to be through a believer. I don't fully get that, but I think it's kind of cool. Thank you for letting us be part of it. Lord Jesus, I I pray that we would be like you, that you would live through us, that we would be content being a bold witness and let you handle the results, that we would be content with rejection, we would be content with loss. But I also pray that we would get to see some of those that do respond. In, In two chapters, we see a blind man that you heal, and he does what we should do. He goes all in, no matter what it's gonna cost. And I pray that we would get to see some of that fruit also. Lord Jesus Christ, if there's anybody in this room 
I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in here to convict them of sin and that if they've been a cockroach, (laughs) they would decide to come out from under the rock and follow you. Let you be Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.